As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. gave us a few stunners and another 2-0 lead blown for the Gunners. After Saka had a penalty and failed to score, Arsenal's Premier League lead is reduced to just four. Chelsea have a squad that could really frighten, but they lost again, this time to Brighton. And Spurs fell to a team from the south coast and their top four dreams appear to be toast. Elsewhere, Dortmund had the chance to gain on Bayern, but an injury time goal had them crying. But St. Louis didn't need any of that additional time when they welcomed Cincinnati and hit a dime. And once again, Carlos Feller was the star of the show as LEFC came out on top in El Trafico. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man whose Richmond kickers faced a team called Hailstorm this weekend. Taylor Rockwell, are you aware of the oeuvre of Hailstorm? I, I am not. Uh, and because City Stadium scoreboard is, I think, from not long after the original stadium was built in like the 1910s, uh, it just says home and away. So if you show up not knowing who the opponent is and you don't get a program as I did uh, or did not, then I did not know who they were playing the whole game. But I did enjoy certain facts about the one center back who yelled at the uh, the ultra section, section O, the Richmond Kickers fans. He kind of got into it with them. And then you got to uh, enjoy the Red Army then researching facts about him to throw in his face throughout the game, uh, which made it uh, a wonderful experience. Kickers game's always great, even if you don't know the team they're playing. Section O, is that like the Corva in Richmond? The, yeah, uh, so it's exactly your own same thing. On. Yeah, I'm, I'm not <laughs> going to say that. It's the one that is designated as uh, non-family friendly, and then the other side of the stands would be the family friendly section. So you Wonderful. don't get smoke and uh, curses yelled at you. Uh, but we sat right by the ultras. Uh, our daughter loves sitting there and occasionally waving a flag. Very nice. I'm glad you enjoyed the Northern Colorado hailstorm. And uh, coming up, Tater, uh, <laughs> the kick is taking on, of course, DC United in the old Open Cup. Huh? They're going uh, down. Yeah. Who's going, going down? down? Which one? Yep. They uh, are. Yeah, one of them, probably. <laughs> they. The they. DC, well, why not? You're I'm sure here. everyone's going to have a lovely time, yourself very much included at that one, Taylor. Joining us, a man whose Phoenix Rising hosted Monterey Bay in their lovely new stadium this weekend. A 1-1 draw, Joe Lowry. I- I've got to imagine, Joe, I don't know if you've been there, but 
An away day at Monterey Bay will be wonderful. Cardinale Stadium is a 12-minute drive from the Monterey Bay Aquarium. They've got the kelp forest there. It's just, it's just <laughs> wonderful. I'm sure, I'm sure you'll make it one day, right? I'm impressed that you weaved your biggest passion into my introduction, Ryan. That is exceptional work from you. I have never been to an away day uh, for Monterey, but uh, I was not at the game this weekend either, unfortunately. But uh, 1-1 draw is disappointing, for sure, for this club. Uh, I'm, I'm extremely disappointed about that. And we're going to come back stronger next week. There's always more to be done. Should have done better, could have done better. If anything, they've hit it too well. I, that's all the cliches I have. Always more potential to rise, if you will, Joe. Mm. Mm. Also, sorry, Taylor, did you not look at your phone once? Like, Fat Mob has, <laughs> has, the, has the scores and the teams in it, right? Like, you go and it has, you could look. Yeah, no, nothing. Joe, have you ever uh, taken a toddler to a soccer game? No, I wasn't looking at my phone. Oh, fair enough. Wow. Fair enough. I didn't, I didn't realize. <laughs> the, the phone was in the toddler's hand and Paw Patrol was playing, Joe. I think oh, probably went so I will, I will brag about her for a moment. We had a long Saturday culminating in the kicker's game, and she fell asleep on the ride to the stadium, fell asleep on the walk, or was asleep on me from the walk from the car to... Uh, security was asleep on me through security, was asleep when we got our beers, was asleep when we sat down in the stands, and then fully woke up about 10 minutes into, like, game mode, like, genuinely woke up straight into applause and then started wow. cheering. So she was up for it from the jump. The, but the then will yes. do that for you, Taylor, I imagine. <laughs> exactly, I mean, you know, yeah. you gotta wake them up somehow. Please don't tell people. Please don't tell people that. Wonderful stuff. Rounding out our pack, of course, a man who saw his beloved Sterling Albion win again this weekend against one of the most fun team names to say, Stenhouse Muir. Wonderful. <laughs> Graham, congratulations. Must be nice supporting a fourth tier team that actually wins games. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. And yes, I was also asleep on the way into Stenhouse Muir Stadium, <laughs> much like Taylor's daughter, because the night before I was on a stag do, which is a bachelor party, wow. and I found myself in a bar at 4am listening to a chic uh, tribute band and then had to drive four hours down the road to see Sterling Albion. Win at Stenhouse Muir with a stoppage time winner, so a big win for Sterling Albion, but the real win here is that I didn't uh, fall asleep at the wheel on the way down from the, high, uh, from the Highlands. A, sh- a chic tribute band. Is this Man City related or is this like a 70s disco? 70s disco, yeah. Okay. I don't, know what a, I don't know what a city tribute <laughs> band looks like. Newcastle United? <laughs> It'll be a wonderful company of musicians. No. Yeah. Nope. No, okay. No, no. Too early <laughs> Joe's for that. Joe's not having it. No, no. sorry, <laughs> Joe. All right. Yeah, let's the first get... one was good. That one, not so much. <laughs> Thank you very much. By the way, guys, patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show. Plenty going on there. You can get access to our wonderful Discord for bonus chat conversation. We do bonus episodes there. Some videos have gone up this weekend, including some rare ones from my good self. I was in uh, southern Italy this past uh, few days. Uh, I'm sure you'll miss me very much. Probably not, um, but uh, so do, do check out some videos on there. But for the I'm meantime, I'm still reeling from that messy uh, yeah. mannequin, Ryan Billy. That's the stuff of nightmares, right there. Very, very nightmarish stuff indeed. It was Balotelli, Ronaldo, and Messi in mannequin form in this soccer store, which was very busy and actually had good stuff in it, as you may see in the video. But they need to work on those. Madame Tussauds needs to come and have a little word with those guys. I think. Um, yeah. Anyway, good effort. Why don't we start off, guys, in the Major League Soccer's El Trafico taking place on Sunday. Joe, is this the first Sunday game of the league? Have there been Saturdays up to this point, by my recollection? I believe we had a couple of Sundays earlier on in the year. Okay, Uh, opening weekend we did. Yep, yep, okay, so but over the last few weeks, there's been a lot more discussion among fans, and at least in in the Twitter-verse, about maybe spreading games out a little bit more. And I do think this weekend was a good example as to why. 
the shine you get as a league when you spread things out even just a little bit, maybe a middle ground between where things were in the past where there's no consistency at all, and now where usually the games are on Saturdays, but you might get one on Sunday. Hey, maybe next year we, we can talk about a Friday game, something like that. But I mean, the shine that this game got and the shine that at least for me, because my Apple TV wasn't having any problems yesterday uh, on Saturday, I guess now. But you had Portland-Seattle, which was a fantastic game as well. Portland scoring you know, a bunch of goals late on, including a bicycle kick in that match. You, know, you can have both of those games lead. You don't have to pick one. When you stack everything on Saturdays, you kind of do have to pick one. So I, I right. enjoyed a lot of this weekend's action because we had El Trafico on Sunday. And the game itself, guys, just did not disappoint. Well, Joe, if only this, well, I was going to say this, this could have been a much better game. These two teams never deliver, do they? Whenever they meet, it's always a dull affair. There's rarely any goals. So anyway, this one, 3-2 to LAFC, of yeah, course, uh, the 18th to... edition of this game. Um, the first LAFC win uh, for the LAFC team in Carson, Graham. Yeah, and just to jump in there, Ryan, there's been 76 goals in 17 MLS editions of this match, including playoffs. Wow. Uh, which is just... Utterly, utterly remarkable. I tweeted this out. Obviously, the sample size is smaller than other, maybe more historic rivalries around the world, but I can't think of a fixture that delivers more consistently than El Trafico no. at the moment. Every single game Man City, is South a must. Oh, of course, yeah. I forgot about that one. But, but besides <laughs> that, um, this match is just always a must-watch event. This, this game in particular was breathless at points. Both teams were going at it. I didn't think it was always the, the, the highest quality match, in particular with some of the Galaxy defending, which really cost them in this game. But man, it was thrilling to watch right until the final whistle and stoppage time when the Galaxy are chasing down that equalizing yeah. goal. I, I didn't really want the match to end at that point. Yeah, I mean, Graham, I think that's a phenomenal point. I was literally about to read that stat out. If Ryan was going to throw something to me, I had it up on my computer. I was going to the tab. That's well played. Like, this game was so good. Both... Uh, I enjoyed a lot of the soccer parts, although individual defending does does happen. I think at times that makes games even more entertaining and more quality. But like at the same time, you have all the off-field stuff going around, uh, going on with the Galaxy right now. In this match, uh, somebody rented out a plane to fly uh, hashtag Klein out, hashtag Karofsky out. That's uh, Galaxy president Chris Klein and Galaxy technical director jo- Jovan Karofsky. So people are still protesting on the Galaxy side. There were a lot of LAFC fans in the stadium, to my eye, more than normal. And some of that is tied up with the Galaxy and, and fans taking matters into their own hands on that side of this rivalry. But the, the stadium still felt loud. It was a little bit of a different dynamic on that front. And then you've got actual on-field drama all the way through this game. It's so fun as an outsider, as a neutral, and, and probably for these teams as well and fans of these teams. It's fun to see a game against teams, especially in MLS, that truly don't like each other. Right? I feel like in Major League Soccer, there are so many manufactured rivalries. There are so many things that are just done for branding to try to fill out a rivalry week or, or whatever it is for a social media post. Like Heineken this, rivalry week, do you mean, Jeff? Yeah, Heineken, sorry, my mistake. Yeah. Heineken rivalry I'm still waiting on my, my bucket of alcohol-free beer that they sent out to folks a while ago. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it's, it's rare to see that. And in this match, you have Chicharito like yelling obscenities at Kellen Acosta. Yeah. In the last, like, like over and they were so angry at each other. And these teams hate each other like Raheem Edwards left back for the galaxy has been on both sides of this rivalry I-, I think you can tell like the galaxy and-, and Edwards come in motivated like they come in angry and ready to prove something and playing harder I know this is kind of intangible but it feels to me like the galaxy played harder in this game than they have for so much of the season they don't get a result and they're still next to last in the western conference but man like MLS just needs more of this they need more regular season games that matter and El Trafico 
even though realistically it doesn't matter and the Galaxy are probably still going to make the playoffs and everything's going to be fine for them, like fine in MLS terms because 62% of the league makes the playoffs or whatever the number is. But like, man, this was just a good game and a great yeah. advertisement for the league. And this should be more of what they're trying to do. It's just unfortunate that, you know, this stuff doesn't happen everywhere. It, it almost only happens in LA right now. Yeah, and, and I actually felt, despite losing the game here, I felt the, the Galaxy played well for periods of, of this match. Coming into this game, I think a lot of people were down on the Galaxy, obviously given the start to the season that they've had, the fact that LAFC have been in good form, and obviously all the off-field stuff, um, the, the stuff that Joe has outlined there as well, affecting things for the Galaxy. But I thought they looked dangerous in transition. They were doing a, a decent job of getting in between the lines. Their equaliser comes from a, a turnover high up the pitch. The, the, the match as a whole... I thought looked pretty good for the Galaxy, but the, the first LAFC, LAFC goal comes from a, a sort of unfortunate ricochet to Vela. You could also pinpoint the, or highlight the, the lack of support from the midfield as well, but yeah. the way that that ball falls to Vela is quite unfortunate for the Galaxy, and then he obviously sticks it in the top corner. The second one is a defensive calamity, and then the third one is that set-piece weakness that Vanny spoke about before the match. Um, and, and then the, the more the Galaxy pushed forward when, when behind, that gave LAFC space to play under the break. But I, th I thought the Galaxy certainly contributed to the contest. I'm not necessarily saying the Galaxy were the better team here. I'm just saying that the scoreline was influenced by big moments going LAFC's way. And the Galaxy, on the back of this game, look, they'll obviously be down after losing a big, a big derby. But there are actually positives for them to take from, from this match. Graham, that, uh, you mentioned some of the defensive errors from the Galaxy and that first goal was one that caught my eye in particular. The, Chris Mavinga at the centre-back in that instance, he reminded me of me defending when the goalkeeper's <laughs> like, track uh -oh. him, track him. No, go over That's there, go good. over there. No, come back to him because it was basically he sort of ran in two different directions and ended up leaving Carlos Vela completely alone in the box to get the time and space to curl that one yeah. off. It, and he got subbed out in the second half as well. So not a great one from him, and unfortunately, Joe. Yeah, I think that may have been injury related. I don't I honestly don't recall and Koulibaly comes on and that was his his first stretch of the season for the Galaxy. I mean, I think Ryan, you're right about that. And Graham, you're right about some of the individual moments going LAFC's way. I would argue, you know, and you, you can't fully control those moments, right? You can't fully plan or prepare for something like that. But I would argue that LAFC are much better equipped to force those moments and capitalize on those moments in the Galaxy. And that is probably the, the biggest thing that separates these two teams right now is, you know, in that moment, the, the Ryan defending moment, it's Dennis Bawanga, who's been maybe the, the best attacker in MLS so far this year. He's driving forward, and the Galaxy very clearly know that it's Dennis Bawanga. This is the guy that scored an N1 mixtape hat trick last week against Austin. we got to do something about this guy. They step in a ridiculous way, like something in the brain just sort of shuts off in that moment. Then the ball, after a little pinball action, goes to Carlos Vela, and, and he's the guy in MLS that you want in that exact position, in that exact moment. The Galaxy don't have that guy. Tyler Boyd scores a ridiculous goal outside the box, a, a sort of a fluke shot, but it was exactly what the Galaxy needed in this game. They've been yearning for that kind of production from their wingers. But like when Tyler Boyd does that, it feels like a one-off. When Carlos Vela gets the ball on the right side of the box, you're almost expecting something, right? So there, there are levels to these two teams right now. I think generally that's what this season has shown us so far. Maybe even the last couple of seasons have shown us this about LAFC. I mean, just generally speaking, when they get the ball into those dangerous areas, the talent advantage they have relative to pretty much any LA Galaxy player outside of, I guess, the midfield space is is just so real. Yeah, Joe, how how much did you enjoy Ricky Puge, Puge's <laughs> performance in this game? Because you spoke, you said earlier about the Galaxy played hard, and I don't think anyone on that pitch played harder than, than Ricky Puge. And that was kind of the first indicator of 
this game is going to be was going to be a good one. I mean, all these sure. games are, are good ones, but when five minutes in, Ricky Puge is like thumping the ground in frustration and <laughs> waving to teammates to get forwards, and I, I, that was the indicator that he was here to play, and it and it was just fantastic to watch. Great, was it Puge who put that ridiculous through ball through the middle yes. when it was like oh, yeah. to, to Chicharito as well? That Fernandez, was unreal. Yeah. one of the best passes I've ever seen. Yeah, this, this was this was one of the best games I've seen him play in MLS. And admittedly, I, I don't watch every LA Galaxy game, and he was brilliant in the second half of last season. But I really thought he was incredible, and he just showcased why he's so special. And when he plays like this, he just he just elevates the the level of the Galaxy as a whole. His ability to keep the ball glued to his foot in all situations Unreal. is just amazing. Like he spins, he drops a shoulder, he changes directions. I I, I, I love watching him play when he's in this mood. And, and and I thought it was interesting that Puge was able to do all this stuff and was able to do a better job of finding space in between the lines with Chicharito back, who maybe didn't have a great game, misses a couple of opportunities there, but just having him as a threat in behind then creates that space for Puge mm. to kind of stride into. So we spoke a, a, about the Galaxy a few weeks ago and how poor of a start that they, they they have had. I think having Chicharito Hernandez back in that team changes Agreed. the landscape for this team and for Puj as an individual as well. Yeah, Chicharito's movement is just so sharp and he does like to run in beyond and that can give the Galaxy more space to operate inside. It can allow their wingers to tuck in a little bit more and, and Jovalich is a good striker as well. I think he could be a starter for a lot of teams in MLS, but the difference in profile there could end up helping the Galaxy. On, on Puj, Man, I've been I've been beating this drum for a while now, right? I think folks will know that. I've I've said it, and I've talked about it on Twitter. A lot of people have, have sort of taken, I don't know, umbrage with some of the stuff I've said about Pooj and how good he is on the ball and like how he single-handedly is keeping this galaxy team ticking in possession. But like, I don't know. I I'm just too lazy to go and actually like cut up all the clips and just post it on Twitter. But his his <laughs> his ability on the ball is unmatched. There's no one in MLS. I don't think there's ever been someone in MLS that is as good on the ball in terms of press resistance, in terms of carrying the ball forward, occasionally in terms of pulling out a highlight real pass like he did in the in the second half. Or a shot off Although, the post. Or a shot off the post. I mean, th- his technique in striking the ball is just elite. Like, it is absolutely elite. You could put him down in any league in the world, and he's he's been in the best of the best, and and he will shine in that way. So that's, that's one part. I love watching Ricky Puj. Another reason why I like watching Ricky Puj is because he doesn't really defend. And I, I think, Graham, you, you're talking about how good he was in this game. I would have, like, split it into two sides. He was incredibly good on the ball. I put, like, a not small percentage of some of LAFC's attacking success on Puja's frustration and, like, unwillingness to defend. And and maybe you carry that, and I think you kind of have to carry that. But in a game like this where the Galaxy are at a talent disadvantage and Puja's got to know that. He's been angry at this team, this Galaxy team, all year long. Like, he has visibly shown frustration over and over and over again. You have to know what you're getting into. And I thought Puj deserves a significant amount of blame for that, that first goal that LAFC scored where he's not tracking back. Like he's frustrated and he just doesn't move. Like he's waiting and waiting and waiting and it doesn't happen. I think generally speaking, again, I just said this, but to reiterate, the Galaxy have to accommodate that because he is good enough to carry. Like he is a player that is worth carrying at times. But I don't know, for, for this Galaxy team to really be a player in the league, I can't help but think that maybe Puj needs to up his effort levels off the ball by like 10% and this team gets noticeably better. 
I want to rehash uh, the number 10 debate for a moment, because I referred to him as a, as a great number 10 previously. Uh, Joe, you and Graham both uh, correctly took issue with that, pointing out that he is more of a number eight for the Galaxy. But I think where I was coming from, from everything I'd read about him and his shortcomings at Barcelona, were functioning within a tactical system and functioning on the defensive side of things, doing the defensive work that was required for the system to work. To me, it makes much more sense to just... Go with a four two three one. Let him be a number ten. When you defend, you go into a four four two, and he sort of can drop in on occasion, but is not required to do so. It, it like we're talking about it, a supremely technical, talented player who's great on the ball, who can string passes together, but doesn't want to do the defensive work. That just screams number ten to me. So why doesn't that make sense? Why doesn't that fit? I I think there's a chance that that fits better than what the Galaxy have been doing. And, and for folks that haven't watched, usually with the Galaxy, it's a four three three. Ricky Puj is playing as the left-sided central midfielder. Delgado's on the right, and then you've got Gaston Brugman as the number six. And Puj does run the show. Like, let's not let's not kid ourselves. He is the guy who goes where he wants to an extent. And so he has 10-ish tendencies with how Greg Vanny plays right now. But he's not playing as, like, a, a number 10 right underneath a striker and pulling all the strings in zone 14 and getting forward, all that stuff. That doesn't really happen. The reason why I think it hasn't happened, Taylor, and maybe this is the reason why, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit less bullish on that idea, like it doesn't feel immediately obvious to me, I guess, is because you know, we see that incredible pass from Puj in this game that Ryan called out, and he can do that stuff, he just doesn't do it very often. And, and maybe that's a symptom of the Galaxy's wingers just being bad players, like relative to the, to the rest of the talent level. Maybe it's, you know, they haven't had Chicharito, and so when, when he's back, that really is a difference maker, and Puj is going to, you know, just thread him in behind all day. But really, when I watch Ricky Puj, he is almost always the pass before the pass guy. And, and elite number 10s in MLS, and there are a lot of elite number 10s yeah. in MLS, they're threading the through balls all the time. Like Lucho Acosta is trying two or three or four of those passes a game. They're racking up key passes. They're racking up expected assists. That's just never been Puj's game. Like at Barcelona, and you can still see that, that tendency drilled into him, that Barcelona tendency, he's always you know playing in those triangles. He's on the left side of midfield, combining with the left back or the left winger or the six or the striker dropping in. The, the, you know, any of those players, he, he almost like doesn't want to do that stuff. And I think he can. And maybe if Vanny said, no, like you're the 10 of this team, you're going to drive us forward. Maybe he would, but that's always been my reservation is he defends like a 10, but he doesn't attack like a 10. And that kind of puts the galaxy at times in a little bit of a weird spot. Joe, is the pass before the pass, the MLS pass? Yeah. He's Ricky Puj has always belonged in MLS to get right. those MLS assists over and over again. Um, or those MLS key passes, whatever we want to do. I don't think they do it for key passes. I think just for assists. But yeah, Puj was born for this league, right? Wonderful stuff. All right, five goals in this one. Also five goals in Portland with the Timbers getting a 4-1 oh. win over the Sounders, Joe. I, I could not believe this game. The Timbers have been injured and tattered all year long. Seattle coming into this match, they were the favorites as the away team in Portland. That doesn't happen terribly often. They get a 1-0 lead. Seattle have been generally the better team through 60 minutes, through 70 minutes. Portland had very, very little in terms of chance creation. And then Dyron Espria, who is just in MLS every single year, no matter what is going on in the rest of the world, hits a bicycle kick, like a really, really, really good bicycle kick. That probably would be the talk of, of folks covering this league, if not for El Trafico. He equalizes in the 71st minute, and then Portland pull out three more goals in the next uh, 18 minutes to win this game 4-1 and blow the doors right off at Providence Park. This was a really fun match. I, I don't know that it really tells us a ton about these teams other than maybe Portland, they're starting to get healthy and maybe teams should start taking them more seriously in the Western Conference because I don't think they deserve to be taken seriously with some of the squad depth issues they have and all those injuries that I mentioned. But that's one side of this. And Seattle, 
I wouldn't worry particularly much about what's going on there. They were dealing with a couple of injuries as well in this game, especially in midfield that necessitated some changes from Brian Schmetzer. I think this team's still really good. It was an unfortunate series of events. I think this team is, ha- has enough veteran leaders, though, that they're not really going to let this bog them down. On the whole, though, guys, just such a, such a good game. Very much so. Uh, six goals in St. Louis, Joe, at City Park. All caps. Each letter is important as the last. A 5-1 win for St. Louis over Cincy, um, who are back top, denying Cincinnati top spot in the East with this one. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. I mean, St. Louis were effective in this match. Like This was a game that felt like, Taylor, you talk about quicksand games, and we talked about it for Upa Meccano last week mm-hmm. in the Champions League. This was just an FC Cincinnati quicksand game. Like They give up a goal in the third minute, sort of a, a weird wonky goal. And then it just felt like almost from that moment that they were going to struggle to get back into this game. And they really did. They were down 5-0 before Sergio Santos gets a goal. The last goal was one of those own goals that hits the post, hits the goalkeeper, like the back of the goalkeeper, and then goes in. Like the most insulting goal of all time. That's how St. Louis scored their fifth goal in this match. They continue to be competitive in this league. Cincinnati, I thought, were going to win this game away from home. As it turns out, missing Brenner, who is working out a deal reportedly to Udinese in Serie A, so he will be gone, it certainly seems like, in the summer. He was not a part of this game as, as those negotiations were taking place, it seems like. And Lucio Acosta was out injured. So they basically played like three strikers at the top of their, their attacking shape. And it was weird and wonky. Didn't really work. And again, credit to St. Louis for getting the job done. And, and not just that. After a two-hour weather delay, it looked to me on the broadcast, at least, like the stadium was still packed. So credit to the team and credit to the fans because they brought it after uh, Mother Nature tried to send them home. Yeah, and speaking of uh, weather delays and abandonments and postponements, see the latest edition of Soccer 101 for more on that topic. Taylor Rockwell. I have a question for Joe. Uh, I was looking at the standings. We have uh, Montreal v. Sporting KC coming up in the near future. It might be the other way around on that one. Joe, uh, how much money would it take for you to enthusiastically watch that game? Not that much, to okay. be honest. I'm just <laughs> so you're just a glutton for punishment. Then. Yeah, I I just like watching soccer and Major League Soccer is fun. Um, of those two teams, I know this is not mm-hmm. what you asked. Uh, Montreal are in so much trouble. Like I can't I can't even express how bad this team is, how bad their roster is at this point. They have traded away or or transferred out you know, so many of their best players from the last couple of seasons. SKC has struggled, and they were played off the field by San Lu- uh, by uh, San Jose. Excuse me, this weekend, San Jose winning three nil and were excellent in this match. The first goal I tweeted out, the, the sequence I retweeted it from the San Jose Earthquakes account, like, go watch it. It is such a good piece of build-up to find Montero between the lines. SKC just really could never get back in that play. It is one of the best team goals that you'll see from global soccer this weekend. SKC just got played off the field, and uh, they're in trouble as well. But Montreal, of those two teams... They are the much more in trouble team of, of the bunch. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Um, we need to take a break, but a quick stat. A study from Deloitte has backed promotion and relegation in the U.S. soccer pyramid. 88% of soccer fans in the U.S. reportedly want to see promotion and relegation in the USA. Um, Graham, I'm quite sure MLS will be very happy to accommodate mm. this request uh, very soon. Yeah, and how many of those 88% of fans paid $350 million for an expansion spot? Yeah. Did they have that in their study? Yeah, (laughs) that's the issue, isn't it? Yeah, not sure it's going to... I mean, I think there's a real chance it happens further down the pyramid. Maybe not at the very top of the pyramid, though. We shall see. It would be awesome if the other 12% were just all the MLS owners. That was the the, the 12% (laughs) that were against it. They just happened to luck out and get every single MLS owner. (laughs) maybe so let's take a quick break when we come back we're going to turn our attention to the premier league 
which is heating up back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's go to the Premier League, which is like a two-headed dog. It's interesting at both ends at the moment. Oh, so much going on promotion and relegation-wise. Let's head to the top of the table, though. Man City and Arsenal with varying fortunes this weekend. On Sunday, we had West Ham 2, Arsenal 2, after Arsenal had a two-goal lead, which they gave up after missing a penalty, no less as well. A very exciting game, Graham, with uh, West Ham... Um, hitting a crossbar in the dying minutes as well. Uh, what happened here? Is this a mentality hmm. issue for Arsenal? This match was sort of a copy and paste of what happened to Arsenal at Anfield, where in the first 20 minutes they looked ready to flatten the opposition um, and then they, they were really rattled when the match flipped the other way, particularly after the Saka penalty miss. And after the Liverpool game, we debated whether it was a point gained or two points dropped. And and you could have made the argument either way. In fact, I think I made the argument that it was probably a point gained by full time. I can't make that argument here. Um, this is a result that could really cost Arsenal in the title race, which you're now, we're now, there's now this growing sense is going to come down right to the wire with Manchester City in the form that they're in at the moment. There's obviously that game between Man City and Arsenal that the Etihad in a week and a half's time, which will have a big bearing on the, on the title race. But there are questions about Arsenal's mentality at the moment after conceding the, the second goal. It was clear that their concentration and their focus had completely gone. Gabriel was a good measure of this. So he kept lumping balls forward to attackers who'd don't usually handle that sort of service when he did have options out to uh, Ben White was getting particularly frustrated that he wasn't receiving that pass. He also had Kieran Tierney on the left side as well. Rob Holding, again, I really hate to highlight him because he's kind of just out of his depth and it's not really his fault, but he's just such a downgrade on William Saliba and, and the way that he plays out and the way that he gets beaten for pace quite often. So Arsenal desperately needs Saliba back. And then also the changes that Arteta made off the bench I thought gave Arsenal a lot of trouble and were pretty terrible and didn't help them in any way. So it wasn't so much the players who came on, it was the players who came off. So it was Thomas Partey, Odegaard and Gabriel Jesus. And Arsenal have coped without one or two of those players in various situations this season. But all three at once coming off in a game like this, it just kind of robbed 
Arsenal of any sort of possession structure where nobody besides Trossard was willing to take anyone on or make an incisive decision with a pass or a shot. And it just kind of became very predictable with lots of crosses into the box. And West Ham found that very easy to defend against and then to hit out on, on in quick transition themselves. And, and Jared Bowen, I thought in particular, was excellent for West Ham. He was kind of the one setting the tone for them in all areas. So he was pressing high. He was the one getting in behind. Um, obviously scores a goal as well. So it was, as I say, very much a, a repeat of what happened at Anfield for, for Arsenal, but against inferior opposition that they really should have seen off in this game. Great. Is it- is it strange to anyone else, Ryan, sorry for jumping in, that like, I think in writing my, my notes for this one and preparing to talk about this game, I, I definitely approached it from this, like, well, that's the title race done, like Arsenal, like slipping up, losing points, Man City, Man City look like a juggernaut, and then you look at the table, Arsenal, four points ahead, yeah. obviously having played one game more. I'm wondering where you all are on that sort of feeling that Things have changed. Arsenal, I think, yes. for reasons Graham has mentioned, uh, they don't have the depth and talent. They don't have, I think, the squad consistency to be able to chop and change the way they did. So when you lose a few key players, even, say, Kieran Tierney coming in, not quite going to give you what Oleksandr Zinchenko gives. I knew that was going to be a problem <laughs> for me, but I went for it anyway. It, it does, like, I can't tell if I'm just being reactionary and premature or if because Man City have looked so strong, it is sort of writing on the wall for Arsenal. I'm wondering how you all feel about that one. It does kind of feel like there has been a shift in, in, in the dynamic. Um, what I would say is Arsenal went three games without a win in February when people thought that they had blown it and they recovered. They had that game at Aston Villa where it, it really did at that point look like it was gone for them at Aston Villa. That would have been four games without a win. They scored two late goals. They get back on track. They win seven in a row after that. So there are a lot of people writing off a team that's still sitting top of the table um, but at this point, it feels like the momentum's behind Manchester City. It just feels like City have found solutions to problems yeah. in a way that Arsenal haven't been able to in the last two or three games. I think I think City have shown, and let me back up actually, just to get the thesis out there first. Yeah, I think City are going to win the title. And I, I, I've been feeling that way for a while now. The odds back it up, our, our eyes back it up, like City are just playing better soccer than Arsenal right now. I think what, what we've seen over the last few weeks is kind of something that we'd all talked about during the January transfer window, which is Arsenal have quality and they have very, very good players. But I don't believe that even with some of the signings they've made in midfield and in the attack, I don't believe that they have the depth or the top end talent to rival Man City. And unfortunately, they built themselves up a cushion, which is great for them. Unfortunately, I don't think the cushion was big enough. And we're slowly seeing the gap narrow. And I think over the next few weeks, we're going to see the, the gap completely switch and it be a gap between Arsenal and City with Arsenal trying to catch up rather than the other way around. I, I just think it's clear at this point and the results have shown it. It's not that difficult to see the, the gulf in quality of these two teams when you watch them play. Like, yeah, this thing, I would be pretty surprised yeah. at this point if it doesn't flip around. And this is why, like, there, there were folks, I saw a, a clip, I believe, of Alexis Guerreros, who's a friend of the show, and, and Christine Cupo. You know, doing a Cooligans episode not too long ago, I believe both Arsenal fans talking about like, why aren't we getting the respect that we deserve, right? Wait, why aren't the Gooners being talked about as like, you know, this is the team, this is their year? Well, it's because listeners think, can't hear that, me roll my eyes, the... but I'm rolling my eyes anyway. That go was ahead, the Joe. discussion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I true. This is true, but I also think you know we, we have not anointed Arsenal in the way that we've anointed City or that we've anointed Liverpool. The, the tone of those discussions have been different because I think deep down all of us knew that City had the power to sort of snap their fingers and turn things around. And it, yeah. it certainly seems to me like that's what's happening right now. 
I'm, I'm not going to re- revise my own history. There was a point post-World Cup where I remember coming on the show and saying, I think Arsenal are going to win the title. Mm-hmm. So the, I haven't been consistent all the way through the season. I have kind of gone back and forth. Now I am sort of thinking City are going to win it. But the way that this the final phase of this, se- this season is, is panning out is just uh, a statement on how good you need to be to beat Manchester City under Pep Guardiola. Arsenal have had an, an historically good season. The first half of their season, I believe, they accrued more points than in any other Premier League season. We're talking the Invincible season. We're talking title-winning seasons under Arsene Wenger. The first half of this season was better. They will likely finish on 90-plus points this season. And that might still not be enough to beat Man City, who have a generational manager um, they have the resources of the bigger larger resources than any other Premier League team besides Newcastle now they have this sporting structure that allows them to identify players and slot them into the team they also have the depth that they can sign a 100 million pound winger put them on the bench for a season to allow them allow them to climatize and then un- un- unleash them in the second second half of this uh, the second season City are just, they are set in a standard in the Premier League that I don't think we've ever seen before. We've had dominant teams in the Premier League. We've had Fergus United. We've had Mourinho's Chelsea, for example. I don't think we've ever seen a team this dominant. I think the high, the level is higher than ever before. Something a bit depressing about that in a way, I suppose. But uh, here we are. Um, we should probably give some credit to West Ham as well and David Moyes. Graham. Um, Moyes feels like one of those action movies where he was on the ropes, he was black and blue, it looked like there was no point in return and suddenly he's like still got a job and getting um, results against the top team in the league. West Ham four points above the relegation zone. Let's not forget this has been a huge week for West Ham uh, the previous Wednesday getting that big win over AFC Richmond as well. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Um, West Ham are kind of very slowly edging themselves away from trouble at the bottom of the Premier League table. I wouldn't call them safe just yet, but it feels like they're trending in the right direction. I think this weekend we saw a little bit of a divide start to um, start to emerge between Leicester. I mean, I, at this point, I think Southampton are gone, to be honest, but Leicester, Nottingham Forest, Everton and Leeds. It feels like two of two of those four teams are going to go down. And then West Ham, Bournemouth, Wolves and Crystal Palace are probably not safe, but they they're looking better than the others at this point. But yeah, West Ham were 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 good in this game, particularly in the second half. There was a change after the sack of penalty miss and how that they were playing on the defensive side of the ball. They started to press high. Arsenal, as I mentioned, were going longer in the channels, which didn't suit their their setup at all. And then Jared Bowen, as I highlighted, was really the one setting the tone. Martinelli started to get isolated in the second half and I think that was due to Bowen pushing Arsenal back and forcing them to go for that sort of hero ball Hollywood pass so it was it was a complete change from West Ham and and this is the thing I've always felt about David Moyes' West Ham is when they're proactive and they play like this that that plays to their strengths when Moyes actually goes back to the default of what we've seen from him earlier in his career this squad is not really set up to play in that manner so the best form of defence for, to use it to borrow a cliche, the best form of defence for West Ham is to attack, and that's what they did in the second half of this game. Graham, I'm just going to continue my trend of only asking questions. Uh, <laughs> with with what you've just said in mind, do you feel like regardless of what happens this season, even if they stay up, that maybe they should be looking at other options, that this should be the yes. end for David Moyes? They could still win the Europa Conference, obviously, so could win silverware, could stay up, but it does feel like this squad needs something different, and I doubt you get rid of all those players. In the way that Moyes is kind of setting up this team to get 
points here and a win here to just save them from relegation because if you look at the the money that West Ham have spent the stadium they play in things like that the size of the club they should be aiming for top half but I think the short-termism of Moyes' management at the moment kind of says to me that he is leaving at the end of the season he just wants to preserve that Premier League status he leaves they go and get someone maybe a little bit more expansive naturally expansive than David Moyes and he gets another Premier League job at Crystal Palace are one of the various jobs that will emerge next season in it's the Royce Premier Joppa League. Life. That feels, yeah, that kind of <laughs> feels like how it'll go. Um, since Ryan opened the door to West Ham and Ted Lasso, uh, I, this isn't really a spoiler uh, for season three, but uh, in that one, West Ham are seen as top four contenders, potential title challengers is the way they're yeah. billed. Yeah. Is that a commentary on how good West Ham should be given all of the things that Graham has mentioned? Or are we to assume that that's because their owner in the series, I'm trying to keep it as vague as possible, has injected a bunch of money? Does anyone else struggle with the idea that West Ham are supposed no. to be a top four team? What I think that says is that West Ham allowed there Apple TV to film at the <laughs> London Stadium. <laughs> that's the one. And, <laughs> yeah, and that's in return, that's they've totally to make West Ham look good. <laughs> yes, someone's stadium is technically owned by the government and they need to pay some bills, I think is what is uh, oh, happening there, to that's be great fair. Stuff. Yeah. Oh, good stuff, fellas. Thank you for that, Cram. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that is the correct response. Uh, let's turn our attentions away from the Hammer Dome to uh, Eastlands, Manchester City 3, Leicester 1. Uh, Erling Haaland uh, with a brace here before getting taken off. Pep insistent on him never getting a hat-trick, it seems. Um, really nice John Stones volley uh, in this one, too. I should Ridiculous. say he has had hat-tricks, but Pep keeps denying him them is what I mean. Uh, a casual 10-game winning streak, Taylor, for uh, Manchester, City, Manchester City here. They are um, in form. Yeah, uh, and <laughs> and I would love to be able to say that I always saw this coming and I, and I totally predicted this, but instead I am going to be the model of consistency and I'm going to say, I'm going to stick to my guns and I think Liverpool will end up winning the title this season. Yep. Guys. <laughs> it's going to be tight, but I think they could still do it. No, I mean, Manchester City, we've talked about them for the last few weeks, just looking completely dominant. And this reminded me of like Happy Gilmore for a reference that hopefully people still get uh, when he just realizes, oh, like hitting holes in one is the way to do this. Uh, City scoring three goals in the first 25 minutes and then crucially not fully taking their foot off the pedal. They let uh, Inacho in with, with a goal in the 75th. There are a few more opportunities for Leicester in this game, but contrasting that with Arsenal going up 2-0, looking completely dominant, looking like they're going to blow away uh, the opposition, and then getting nervous, letting the opponent back into it, Manchester City just don't do that and still found the opportunity to rest players for the Champions League. Uh, Not a bad result for them, I would say. Okay, I have two things. First of all, does anybody want to guess how many goals Erling Holland has this season in all competitions? Because I didn't know it, and I figured this would be a good chance to go back in before the show and and double-check. Where do we think the number is? I say 49. All competitions? All competitions, yep. Okay, 49, I'm guessing. 44. Okay, Taylor? 47. 47 is spot on, according to FB Ref. He has 47 goals so far this season. Well played. Thanks for coming to my game show. It's unreal. Like, he's going to break 50 goals, and uh, it's stupid. It's, It's very, very stupid that this is happening, and it's incredibly entertaining at the exact same time. Another thing that's stupid is how good City were in this game. Unbelievable. They basically came in and kept control of the ball for the opening 10 minutes. Like, Leicester could not get a touch. They could not break forward. City did not have to be in their, their set defensive shape. Like, City came out and were completely and utterly dominant. Like, folks, if you haven't seen, just go watch the first 10 minutes of this game at your lunch break or something. Like, you will see 
the biggest mismatch in quality that, that you've seen in a long, long time. City were almost at their best in this match, and they have been in that or around that level for a while now. And the thing is, they weren't even doing it with the same tactical approach that we've seen them use. With John Stones next to Rodri midfield, it's kind of this 3-2-5 shape. You've got Gundogan and De Bruyne in the half spaces, and you've got Grealish and Bernardo wide. It, that wasn't it. Like, Pep decided, yeah, I don't know. Let's let's try something different again. And he went to a 3-6-1 in this game with Kyle Walker back in the team, not inside, after we roasted Kyle Stupid Walker Kyle a couple Walker. weeks ago. Yeah, thank you, Pep. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle Walker's need the most attention. Right. So it, it, it felt it felt harsh that when you look at the whiteboard of City starting eleven, it just says dum dum where Kyle Walker is starting. That feels unnecessary. And and dum dum was out wide in this game. He was high and wide on the right side. And basically City played with a three one six, with most of the time John Stone still in the back three. Rodri was a single pivot. And I, I think part of the reason why Pep went to this was well, it's twofold. He was overloading that left side. So he basically stacked a lot of the attacking midfielders on the left side, the right side of Leicester's defense. They could overload that area and try to combine and break in, by, break in behind. That's part of it. The other part is, you know, going with that front six, basically, it gave them a, a plus one against Leicester City's back five because they were defending with a back five and defending with their lives for a lot of this game. So you maintain width in the front line against Leicester's back line, and you also overload one side of the, the, the opposing defensive shape. And it, it just worked so well. Like, I don't, maybe it would have worked in the 3 2 5 and things would have been fine and Pep didn't need to do this. But I was entertained. I like that he's doing different stuff. I think we'll probably see that same 3 2 5 shape against City that still feels like their default with their default personnel. But man, like, what a, what a game. Like, Holland is so good. City right now are so good. Pep is just like tossing, you know, little magnets at the whiteboard to see what sticks. And it's, it's just good fun. We, we really saw the sort of Taylor's Happy Gilmore analogy in the third goal, I found, where it was like, oh, we can just like win the ball in a mid block and then Kevin De Bruyne is going to pass it through to Ellingham and he's going to score, right? That 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 was easy. Like, And, and, and there's lots of good tactical stuff going on there, but there is also the element of Man City have better players than yeah. everyone else and can use them to score goals. It wasn't even as if those two players had a lot of space to do what they did for that third goal either, Graham. They just sort of brute force kind of just got the ball through. Very impressive stuff indeed. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, uh, earmuffs, Chelsea fans, we're going to talk about that loss to Brighton. We're going to go around the rest of the Premier League, the rest of the continent, and much, much more. Back shortly. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. 
So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Chelsea won, Brighton 2. Brighton sealing a fight back win with an absolute rocket from Julio and Ciso in this one. A very, very good game from Brighton, Taylor Rockwell. Chelsea, not so much. No, not so much at all. And they do get the opening goal. I would say a lot of that was down to individual effort and individual players trying to make something happen. Less so like a system of patterns and and practice rotations to carve open the opposition. That is much more so what Brighton were doing for the rest of the game. This could have been four to one at halftime and then even worse in the second half. Brighton really... Missing, squandering some opportunities. Uh, Miedema, key amongst them. If he can become a more consistent finisher, uh, he could be like a top top three in goals, I think. He got so many opportunities and is so good on the ball. But I want to praise Brighton plenty, but I, I have to talk about Chelsea for a moment because this was the weekend I realized just how bad of a position Frank Lampard finds himself in. Uh, to explain, first off, my basic question to start is there any chance that he is the permanent manager for Chelsea in the summer? Never really with Chelsea. <laughs> it depends on what Corden says, right? If, I think uh, we would say if... the chances are minimal to none. Is that yes. fair? Okay. Yes, we would. So if if he is not going to be the permanent manager, they can't really care about his player evaluations because if he is there until the end of the season and then they're going to move him on and bring in somebody else, Frank Lampard might say, these three guys aren't good enough for what I want to do. But if you're not sticking with him, yeah, does that cool. matter? No, Thanks, Frank. <laughs> exactly. So he can't really have that much input into the squad. He can't really kick anybody out or he can. But my assumption is that Todd Bowley has brought him in to steer the ship as best he can, hopefully get some results, ideally turn things around. But ultimately, it's it's keep everybody happy. And when a squad is this bloated, he is trying to keep a bunch of different players happy. He can't send a bunch of people to train with the reserves and then only go with the core that he wants. I mean, he can, but I think that's not really going to do much. And it's certainly just going to annoy the owners and a good half of the team. So to me, it's basically, he has to juggle a ton of egos and those egos are aware. This manager isn't going to be here at, like after the season's over, but I will be because they've given me an eight year deal. <laughs> so who cares? I'll wait till the summer. Some of them are probably trying to impress the next manager, but even there, you don't know who it is. You don't know what tactics they're going to go with. You don't know what style they're going to want. So, yeah, you could, like, go all out to do exactly what Frank Lampard wants, but there's always a chance that a manager sees that and thinks, yeah, but that's not what I need. That's great, but we're going to see what you can do in preseason. So, ultimately, I think it's just going through the motions for Chelsea, and they still have the talent to make things happen on an individual level. They can still spring a surprise or two. But I don't see how this gets better at all this season. I think, if anything, it gets worse. I think there's, with that in mind, a very good chance they get crushed this week in the Champions League. So, Taylor, on that note, this is often the time of year when we say that Premier League teams are on the beach where they Mm -hmm. don't have much to compete for. There's that middle of the pack where often 
Um, you know, they're not competing for much at this stage. Could could we say that Chelsea are the only team on the beach in their flip-flops right now, given what we've just discussed there? Yeah, I think so. I think, like, for, for at least chunks of that squad, and even the ones that aren't, I think you could see in this game how individual the team is, especially on the defensive side. Uh, it felt to me like they tried to do some man marking at times. They tried to then yep. drop off and get into their shape to then be able to to like press effectively or play the, the defense they wanted. And that only works if you can do that faster than the opposition can move the ball. And when Brighton move the ball faster than you can get into your defensive shape, you are routinely played out of position. You are routinely caught in overloads. And... What I kept seeing was Chelsea get into spots where they thought they were safe. Uh, there's the one. There's one of the first half that I like went way too far into the weeds documenting. But uh, Pulisic, to his credit, sprints back 30 yards to try to make a defensive play, and he squares up thinking he's got the angle covered. He's done a great job to get back, to make sure everything's covered, except that he has no idea what's behind him. Caicedo just runs right past him. Zakaria is trying to follow him, but too slow to react. And so you just have these individual moments that seem good on the surface, but then when Brighton play as a unit, they pass right through it, and it's a bunch of individuals trying to make things happen and oftentimes not succeeding. The best example of that for me is how often Chelsea would win the first ball or get a clearance in, and that clearance would go directly to Brighton. Uh, And then the best example of that would be the winning goal is Brighton win the ball off of Chelsea, who have a counter-attacking opportunity, so that's one giveaway. Brighton then win the ball back and immediately give it away to Reese James, whose heavy touch is won back by... uh, by, I believe it was Sally March, and then in uh, Brighton Go, and they score, and it's a worldly of a goal. It's an incredible hit from Enciso, but still, it was Chelsea just giving the ball back to Brighton and inviting that pressure back onto them, and again, I just don't know how you correct that in the time, in the window that they have. Yeah, yeah, it's it's almost like not even worth, in my mind, Taylor, you did such a good job, and like Chelsea are just in such a way right now that I want to like toss more on the fire for them, but I'd rather just praise Brighton instead. Like, Zerbi has done such a good job. with it. Yeah, there's plenty that could be said about Chelsea, like, and plenty more that will be before the season ends. So, Zerbi has done such a good job. This team is in seventh right now with two games in hand on three of the six teams above them. So, they have at least one game in hand on everybody and two games in hand on a handful of teams. They're on 49 points. Villa is on 50 points. There's a two games in hand gap there for Brighton. Tottenham's on 53, two games in hand for Brighton. I mean, like, this team is very much not out of certainly the European places, but maybe even the Champions League. It is not impossible for this team. It's unlikely, but it, it's not impossible for them to finish top five and maybe sneak into the Champions League should a, uh, an English team actually get the job done, <clears throat> Man City. So, like, Brighton have been very, very good under Deserby. They've gone through a staff change, through a managerial change. Their personnel is somewhat, you know, transient because of the level of club that they are for as well-run as they are. Like, everything about what they're doing right now under Deserby, under the management of, of, of this club, has been impressive. And in this, in this game, I don't think that was any exception. They found very clear ways through Chelsea's man-marking at times. They are the team in the Premier League alongside with City and maybe Arsenal that I would least want to man-mark at the moment because of how crisp <laughs> and clean their possession play is. The talent's there. Like, the player identification is there. I just don't have enough good things to say about this Brighton group. All the more impressive for Brighton, seeing as they keep having constant penalties and goals denied for them as well. I think that Pulisic Campbell arguably could have been another goal for them in this one as well. So very, very good stuff from Brighton. Frank Lampard, 11 defeats in his last 12 games as manager. I saw a good stat earlier that Roy Hodgson's won three games in his last three ga- uh, three matches. Lampard's won three games in his last 
22 matches. Yeah. So, yeah. Hence, uh, I, go, I think I had it, Ryan, as uh, in his last 17 games. This is from Reddit. One win, two draws, 14 losses, 11 goals scored, 33 against. Wow. <laughs> almost like they shouldn't have given him that job. <laughs> almost <laughs> like. Until the end of the season. Yeah. Almost like they needed to find somebody who would just come in because they were happy to have the Chelsea gig, uh, even if the task was. Don't make anybody mad, including the players that have to change in the hallway because we don't have enough stalls for the first team squad. Well, if there's one thing that we know, um, losing every single match does lift spirits <laughs> yeah. at a football club. Yeah. They're just tanking for the draft next year. It's all good. Don't worry. They've got a plan here. Um, tell you who has got a plan. Unai Emery, Aston Villa Ooh. 3, Newcastle nil. a game which I watched through the window of an Irish bar in Sorrento this weekend. Very, very good performance here. Jacob Ramsey and Ollie Watkins with a brace <laughs> in this one. What? <laughs> What? I mean, I feel like you blew right past that as though that wasn't an odd thing to say. You watched it so, through the window? Yeah, so I was in a cafe having lunch and they had Lazio Spezio replay on in the cafe I was in. Across the street in the Irish bar, they had a live broadcast of the Villa game. Uh, so I was right. watching through so the window. So I thought they'd, they'd <laughs> identified you as English yeah. and had gone, no, yeah. you're not coming it would be, you have to watch from outside. It would be very me to go to an Irish bar in the Italian city I was visiting, but yes, I would. didn't, for, to my yes, credit, I didn't do and that. And then complain about it being Irish. <laughs> that would really put it over the top, yes. Anywho, um, Newcastle going 3-0 down at Villa here, Graham. Quite a shocking uh, result for Newcastle here, but par for the Villa at the moment, who are in sixth European um, spots await them, evidently. Yeah, it's Joe, Joe was talking there about Brighton's European chances and their outside chance of finishing in the top four. I don't think Villa have as strong a chance of that, but their form at the moment is absolutely incredible. When you look at the fixtures they have between now and the end of the season, they have some big games. So they've got games against Man United, Brighton, Brentford, Liverpool and Spurs. So you could say they've got a difficult run in. But the flip side of that is all those teams are around them in, in the table. If they get some big results, they could make their position stick um, to, uh, uh, after they you know, finish the season. They were excellent in this game. Ollie, Ollie Watkins was obviously the, the he headline hogger from this match. He's in remarkable scoring form. He's got 11 goals in 12 games now. But I actually thought Villa won this match in midfield, which is, a, is an area where Newcastle have been so strong this season. But Villa got the, the better of them in there. And I, and I thought uh, John McGinn, uh, Steve Clark's man better than Zidane, John McGinn, <laughs> was very good. He was fl flying around everywhere, picking passes, fighting for loose balls. It was a classic John McGinn performance, complete with some good use of the bum, which we haven't really seen much from him this season. Moreno was also very good, beating players on the dribble. Buendia was good. Ramsey, Watkins, they were all linking up very well. The defense was strong. So it really yeah. feels like the the balance that this, this Villa team has got at the moment. I read a, a story from The Athletic a few weeks ago about how some people at Villa thought getting rid of Danny Ings was a mistake. He obviously signs for West Ham in, in the January transfer window, but it really sort of underlined how Emery wanted that balance in all areas of the team. And not having Ings in that side just allows Watkins to stay in a more central position to kind of build the attack around him. And I think you can see that balance in kind of all areas of the team at the moment. I, I was so impressed by this performance. I did not watch it live. Uh, so knowing the score and watching it on the replay made for a more enjoyable and I think informative experience because knowing how good Newcastle have been, and I feel bad that we don't often talk about Newcastle and now we're going to within the context of them getting thumped 3-0. Uh, but in this game, they're defending in, I would say a 4-4-2, sometimes a 4-4-1-1, and it would usually be Joel Linton and uh, Bruno Guimarães as your two central ones. Joe Willock would move onto the right side. Anthony Gordon would drop in into the left. And so you had these two banks of four, 
And Villa kept doing an excellent job of having Emi Buendia behind those front, uh, the midfield two. And then Villa's other midfielders would be on the other side. And so effectively, you had this sort of just box around Newcastle's two central midfielders. And then the onus is on them to either step out and apply pressure, and oftentimes they did not, uh, or to sit deeper. And oftentimes they didn't do that either. either. It felt like they held their ground. And that meant that Villa had so much time on the ball closer to midfield, but also that Emi Buendia just kept popping up between those two, receiving a ball, and then as soon as that ball went into his feet, they immediately had runners getting forward into support positions so that he could one touch lay it off, and then away Villa went. And the road, like the rotations and the patterns are just so practiced and so finely tuned that as soon as Newcastle were bypassed once, it took them a very long time to get back into any semblance of a good defensive position. Uh, key amongst that as well, Jalen Ramsey, his movement and how often it felt like Kieran Trippier was told, don't let him get away from you. Don't ever let there be more than five yards between you two. So Ramsey would just move around, Trippier would follow, and then as soon as they would go, Ollie Watkins would sprint into that zone and now he's wide open and just so many attacks coming down that side. It felt like Villo played their game, but also had done so much film analysis that they knew exactly how to kind of break apart Newcastle's defensive game plan, and equally so their attacking game plan. A thing that stood out to me, it happened over and over and over again. Newcastle would have advantages on the attack, especially on counters, and two different times in the first, I think, 30 minutes, Tyrone Mings is in a 2v1 or 3v1 and makes this very curious, like, he just steps up and to his left, and then the pass goes right to where he is standing. And it happened over and over again. It happens with uh, Mings twice. It happens with Moreno a couple times. It happens with Konza. And to me, that means they've watched the footage. They know that Newcastle want to attack certain spots. They want to play certain balls into those half spaces. And so Villa would just step into those areas and, and intercept the ball routinely. And so it was an example to me of a team playing an excellent unified style in doing what they want to do, but also really nullifying what the opponent wants to do at the same time. So I came away from this one just being reminded once again how good of a manager Unai Emery is and how good he is for Villa. Tottenham 2, Bournemouth 3. Dango Utara with a winner deep in injury time for Bournemouth in this one. A massive win for them. They went up to 14th with this one after winning at relegation rivals Leicester last week. Uh, Tottenham, Graham, no manager. Top four slipping away in the rear view beaten by a relegation-threatened team. So, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it's difficult to know what to say about Spurs at this moment. That hasn't already been said because it's just kind of more of the same. That The atmosphere at that club right now just seems very, very toxic. And there was one particular incident in this game that, that highlighted that. It's, it was when Davinson Sanchez, who was a substitute himself, he played 13 minutes, he's taken off after 13 minutes after a, a mistake for the Solanke goal, and he's booed off the pitch by the Tottenham fans. This is a club that just needs a complete reset this summer from the players on the pitch to obviously a new manager to even the fans in the stand. It feels like that the atmosphere is, is pretty bad and it's maybe affecting things for the team as well. Bournemouth, however, deserve great credit for their performance and how they've pushed themselves up the table in the last few weeks because... I had written them off. I thought they and Southampton were gone, but they've won three of their last four games. Gary O'Neill has them playing this this brand of soccer where they're comfortable on the ball, they're maximising their attacking talent. I thought uh, Vigna looked great on the left side in this game. Solanke is giving them threat in, in, in attack. And given considering the fact that Bournemouth probably have the weakest squad in the Premier League on individual talent, 
if they avoid relegation this season from where they were as well around about the winter time, that will be a phenomenal job by Gary O'Neill. And I think it'd be such a good job that if it wasn't for the freak Pep Guardiola uh, and, the, and Manchester City, he might even be my manager of the season if that's the way that that pans out. Because I, as I say, I thought they were gone. Uh, manager of the season is actually Roy Hodgson. Uh, 2-0 win for Crystal mm. Palace over Southampton, who, yeah, n- n- another L for Southampton, unfortunately. Three wins from three for Roy, as we mentioned. Uh, Southampton now four points adrift uh, in this season. Nottingham Forest, nil Man United, two on Sunday. Man United moving up to third with that one. Forest staying in the relegation zone on goal difference. They are winless in their past 10 games. A quick jaunt around the continent before we leave you, listener. Let's go to Serie A, where Napoli did not win at a nil-nil draw against Verona, who were in 18th spot in uh, Serie A. Um, Napoli had 81% possession in the second half of this game, still didn't get the win out of it. Yikes. Uh, Inter also... I can I can make things a little bit better, a little bit better, because there are massive fan protests at the same time. There's a clash with the owner. Seems like maybe that's getting worked out. That relates to ticket prices and and a few other things along the way. But also, I think they rested players because they're trying. They feel like the league is maybe maybe going to be theirs, less so the Champions League where they have that one nil deficit to overcome. So I think they were resting players. I think. Uh, getting Victor Osimhen back on the pitch, which they did as a substitute, is probably very much a positive. And I think this was the team... Who are they playing, Ryan? Verona. Who are very much battling for their lives and content to put 10 behind the ball and make Napoli try to beat them. And so I think Napoli, a week in Napoli, not playing their starters... Maybe there's a little bit of extenuating circumstances. Still not ideal for them, but I think getting Victor Osimhen back is uh, more than makes up for it. They're still keeping those celebratory title banners in Sorrento up, Ryan, after uh, this result, are they? Yeah, every other home had a banner with uh, three titles, th- three fingers up, three titles win. Um, yeah, they. it's a foregone conclusion for most fans, it seems. So I hope nothing happens there. This was the third game in four that they've been winless, Napoli. Uh, as you say, Taylor, there have, there have been some fan protests happening in the last few games, which is an odd backdrop for a team which is already celebrating its uh, league win prematurely though it may be. So interesting times in southern Italy there. Inter in northern Italy, meanwhile, getting a 1-0 home loss against Monza, their fourth loss in five league games. Oh boy. Uh, Lazio were held, uh, they held on to second place, I should say, excuse me, with uh, the aforementioned 3-0 win over Spezia. Ciro Mobile on Sunday morning making headlines here in Italy. His Range Rover collided with a tram, which he claims did not stop at a red light, uh, he'd been treated for back and rib injuries. Has uh, immobile in Gemelli Hospital. Um, unfortunately, Graham, he doesn't live in my neighbourhood. He lives in Montemario, which is a few miles down the street. I was very disappointed to learn that one. So, otherwise, you'd be doorstepping him for the yeah. the real story of what happened. Yeah, exactly. I'd have been over there in a flash. Uh, over to the Liga, where Real Madrid had a two 0 win over Cadiz. Uh, Nacho and Marcos Asensio with the goals in that one. Did you catch that one, Graham? I didn't, unfortunately. The other three of the four games that we're going to cover, I did though. So, ask me anything about those. Well, well, not anything. Let's but... hear about Hatafe's nil nil draw with Barcelona. Then the second straight nil draw for Barcelona. Uh, their lead now chopped to eleven points with nine games left in the season. Crazy things have happened, haven't they, Graham? Haven't they? Haven't they? It's not going to happen. It's, it's not going to happen. Um, Barcelona have, though, however, gone three games without a goal now. Uh, that hasn't happened for fifteen years in La Liga, Oof. and I don't think it's ever been clearer that Pedri is their most player, um, important player right now. He is out through injury at the moment, and Javi just hasn't been able to 
compensate in any way for for his loss. I mean, without him, Barcelona just don't have any way to play through the lines. And Hitafe kind of looked pretty comfortable here, just as Girona was uh, last week and Real Madrid was obviously when they beat Barcelona 4-0 uh, two weeks ago. This was kind of a bit of a chore of a match to watch, in all honesty. Barcelona feels like they're just sort of coasting till the end of the season. Napoleing it up, so to speak, Graham. Indeed. Uh, yeah. I just need listeners to know that when Graham said Pedri is the most important player, the, the the smiling nod from Joe Lowry was strong. It was very, solemn. very strong. It's solemn right now with Barcelona. Um, <laughs> it's, it's hard. It's hard. The Gavi-Pedri continuum continues. Wonderful stuff. Uh, Valencia with a 2-0 loss at home to Sevilla. Sevilla having a good warm-up here for their Europa League second leg clash with Man United coming this week. Valencia, though, Taylor... Still in the relegation zone. I Still in the relegation zone, I say, in 18th spot. That is not a spot you'd expect Valencia to be occupying. No, a Valencia team that not too long ago were in the Champions League knockout rounds, now in the relegation zone. Two in a loss to Sevilla, two wins in their last 10 matches going back to January. Uh, Reno Gattuso obviously resigning along the way after the club made minimal progress in the January window. Uh, from reading a lot of different uh, fan posts about the situation it's basically a very good encapsulation would be that this past summer they sold uh, Gonzalo Guedes and Carlos Soler for a combined 50 million euros. They signed two relatively improving 22-year-olds for 12 million, 12 million and then brought in Edson Cavani to make up the difference. And he has not done that. Uh, and that is very much sort of a sign of how things have been under owner Peter Lim, that there has been a lot of money taken out, a lot of sales, a lot of loans, uh, not even player loans, but they have taken loans in the club's name. So the financial situation is dire, and by all accounts, the feeling is that if they get relegated, it's going to be a big, big problem, not just because of relegation, but because Peter Lim will likely uh, strip them of assets, sell yeah. players because he has to make up the difference from that relegation it's for not having Malaga. the TV rights. So yeah, it feels like it's going to be another Malaga uh, for a club the size and stature of Valencia that is more than a little shocking. Oh boy. Last but not least, uh, speaking of a little shocking, let's go to the Bundesliga. Uh, Bayern Munich with a 1-1 draw against Hoffenheim. Uh, no Sadio Mane for Bayern. He was suspended following his altercation with Leroy Sane and reports suggesting that Mane's time is up with Bayern Munich. Certainly will be at the end of the season. So did Borussia Dortmund take ding, advantage ding, ding. of Bayern dropping two points? Did they do it? No, Stuttgart three, Borussia Dortmund three, a stoppage time uh, winner from Gio Reyna, cancelled out by a stoppage time equaliser from Stuttgart. Uh, ten man Stuttgart this was as well, Taylor. You've, you've got your hand over your face like in disbelief, but I mean, this is Dortmund. Are you really disbelieving it that much? No, I'm not, and that's what I hate. I hate when like lazy narratives bear themselves out. And it goes back to when we all knew that Dortmund were going to lose to a, a, an in-chaos Bayern Munich, and they did just that in somewhat yep. hilarious fashion. Yep. And then in this one, as you said, like laying it out, uh, Ryan, Bayern drawing with Hoffenheim, Dortmund could have gone level on points, still behind on goal difference. They're up 2-0 in, in the 77th minute. It's all going to plan. Life <laughs> is good. Stuttgart pulled two back in the 77th and 84th. And as you said, Giorena. He's back in. He's scoring goals. 93rd minute stoppage time. Here we go. Champions find a way to win. They're still... Oh, they equalized. And they let Stuttgart back in on the 90 plus 7th. Uh, and it's a, it's like a great bit of drama. And it's a great moment, especially given that Stuttgart were down to 10, as you said, Ryan. But just Dortmund 
not being able to close the game out it, it it just it's it's so annoying when like the stereotype talking point the lazy narrative talking point continues to bear out but here we are uh with me being frustrated probably less so than dortmund supporters indeed sorry to the dortmund supporters out there uh but you could always be a spurs fan and vice versa spurs fans you could always be a dortmund fan maybe there's some uh, solace in that two-way relationship somehow uh by the way best goal of the weekend for me i don't know if anyone caught this uh rb leipzig's 3-2 win over augsburg timo Werner's second goal if you haven't seen it check it whoa, out whoa whoa Rece- whoa sorry yeah. sorry ryan just said best yeah, and timo Werner in the same what is there like What's Joe, happening right now? I was going to insult him in a second. Don't okay, worry, I was good. getting All right. to it. Please do. I feel really unsettled, <laughs> like extremely bad. Team of Werner, edge of the box, um, you know, one touch to dampen it, uh, the ball coming in overhead, and he sort of on the turn bangs in this really nice half volley. Very, very well done. Uh, could have scored five goals though, Werner. That's is. my criticism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could have done better. Anyway, uh, that's the weekend reviewed. Taylor Rockwell, how are you feeling about that weekend? We got a lot of ground covered there, didn't we? Well, we sure did. I really enjoyed this weekend. I really enjoyed uh, Ollie Watkins. I want to say that one more time. Mm. My favorite moment of the weekend, amongst all the goals, all the interesting tactics and everything else we've discussed, I wanted to mention this one. It is in the... Pausing for a moment to find it. Eh, It doesn't really matter. Oh, here it is. 14th minute. Uh, Ollie Watkins drops in, receives the ball, lays it off, and then he, like, turns to make his run forward, and Bruno Guimaraes has followed him, and just knows Watkins isn't really seeing him, knows he can give him a little blindside check, and he does. He bumps into him with a shoulder, he leads with a shoulder, and Watkins gets knocked off balance, and you can see him stop and look like, oh, you did that on purpose. The ref turns to follow the passage of play. Watkins just kicks him in the leg and just gives him a little bit of a kick, like, hey, don't, don't do that. And Gamarsh gets annoyed, but then he's also sort of like, yeah, you're right, I, I bodied you, you kicked me back, things are fair. And just that little bit of like self-policing between the two, uh, I found very enjoyable, even if I myself would not want to get checked by Gamarsh or kicked by Ollie Watkins. Uh, thank you very much, Taylor Rocco. That was your opportunity to say goodbye, but you went back to a game we've already covered and added some more when we're over an hour on the recording. Thank you very much, Taylor. Uh, <laughs> I believe somebody established a precedent by talking about Timo Verne. <laughs> Joe and Harry, thank you so much for your contributions. I just hope that something in there helps somebody get TSS Bingo. That's all I hope. Ryan, thank you. Glad you're back. Good to see you. Oh, TSS Bingo available in the Discord. Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show. It is very good indeed. Graham Rutherford, thank you, sir. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. I'm going to take some inspiration from Taylor Rockwell here and take us on one final tangent. A weirdly bad weekend for league leaders across Europe. Jack Collins tweeted this out over the weekend. Benfica lost to Chavez, uh, Bayern drew with Hoffenheim, Napoli drew with Verona, Arsenal drew with West Ham, Barcelona drew with Hitafi. PSG and Feyenoord were the only winners in Europe's top seven leagues this weekend. So there you go. Wow, I had to extend it out to top seven there. Incredible, incredible stuff. Good stat there. Ryan, guys. six more points for me real quick before we go. <laughs> <laughs> Just explain some more fundamentals of, a, of, a, of an earlier Premier League game, if you will, Taylor. Yeah. Anywho, I mean, <laughs> challenge, oh. challenge extended. Challenge will be accepted if you Listen, want to do this, my of, friend. He put, he put his shoulders back and was breathing and getting ready to go. This is what the patrons for. Indeed, indeed. Flipping uh, through my notes now, sir. <laughs> Taylor, we love you very much, as oh. we do Joe and Graham. Listener, we love you the mostest. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye. Slash